This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley first radio doctor on call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this fine Sunday. We continue to navigate through the pandemic, and today we'll present an update on COVID-19. We'll hear from experts in the field of vaccine development and infectious disease. Our first guest is Dr. James Baker from the University of Michigan. Later, we'll be joined by Dr. John Zerlo from Thomas Jefferson University here in Philadelphia. We begin with Dr. James Baker, professor of medicine, former chief of allergy and clinical immunology at UMichigan, also a professor of biomedical engineering, and the founding director of the Mary H. Weiser Food Allergy Center and the Ruth Dale Doan Professor at Michigan Medicine. He's done extensive research in immunology, invented and designed several key elements in vaccine technology. He was the senior vice president of vaccine franchise at Merck and now is the CEO of Food Allergy Research and Education, the National Food Allergy Foundation. Welcome, Jim. You're the perfect guest with your experience in vaccine development and the study of the immune system. Well, thank you. This is a very important topic. It, it surely is. It's just consuming everything that we do. So my first question, I think that guests might want to know, Jim, is when we say that the Pfizer vaccine is about 95% effective, Moderna pretty about 94.5, and J&J 66%, what does a listener think about that? How does that translate? How do we explain that to a layperson? Well, that's a very good question. What that means is that in a group of people who were exposed uh, naturally to coronavirus infection, to COVID-19, they had 5% as many infections as people in a control placebo group. So, in fact, there was a 95% reduction in the number of COVID infections in a group that got the vaccine versus people that did not get the vaccine. So that really indicates that the vaccine is remarkably effective in preventing people from getting COVID-19. It is nothing short of a miracle to be that effective and have been created so quickly. Uh, It's just mind-boggling. So um, this might sound like a silly question, but would the J&J vaccine be more effective if it had a second dose or it's made differently? 
You know, that's a very interesting question. I think most people feel that two doses of the vaccine are important. The first one sort of gives your immune system a wake-up call mm -hmm. and allows it to recognize the virus. But the second one is the one that really seals the deal, and that sort of boosts the immune response and gets everybody up to the same level. So I think most of us feel that two-dose vaccines are more effective overall than one dose. And in fact, uh, Johnson & Johnson is now doing a study to look at two doses of that vaccine. And if it plays out like others, it could be over 90% effective. Wow. Well, good to have several choices. Now, if the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines don't cover the new variants from South Africa, the UK, and Brazil, will they need a booster? So right now, those two viruses cover uh, the vaccine um, the vaccine landscape in general. They cover almost all of the variants of coronavirus. But in the long run, there's no doubt that eventually some viral mutation will occur that allows it to escape the vaccine. And at that point, this is the neat thing. These new vaccines can be modified almost on the fly. All they have to do is change the sequence of the RNA in the vaccine. They can do that within weeks and have a new vaccine ready within four to six weeks. So this is a real advance over older technology where you'd have to grow up a new virus. You'd have to learn how to culture it, eggs and purify it. But this is really something that you can do within weeks and improve the protection almost simultaneously. And I guess that's what's so appealing to scientists about this RNA vaccine. It's about gene sequencing. And if you can tweak a little uh, sequence and have coverage for a variant, it's just incredible. But I think the other uh, thing to note is and I've learned this from listening to you, um, that the patients who were in trials for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines initially are now, those people are pretty much at about six months past their second vaccine. And as they continue to have blood tests, say through to two years, <clears throat> soon we'll see how long the immunity lasts and if, and if it works with the variants. So uh, we're collecting data as we go. Now, I think, Jim, what's important to share with our listeners, and you have such uh, great experience with this in general, so far, no deaths, no serious side effects, but some people are still hesitating to get the vaccine. What would you tell them? Uh, I think everything is always a risk-benefit ratio. And if you look at the risk involved in getting COVID-19, uh, and you're a person over the age of 50 or 65, there is significant risk there, not, not of dying, maybe, but of getting seriously ill and having long-term uh, repercussions from that. The issues with the virus um, are, are pretty significant, but the vaccine is remarkably safe. Almost all the side effects from the vaccine are things that we'd expect from activating your immune system. You get a fever, you get some pain at the injection site, but they go away very rapidly. And I believe as well, there's, there's very little risk long-term from these vaccines. The RNA vaccines, you know, only make protein for a short period of time. Your body is programmed to break down RNA. It doesn't last like DNA lasts. 
So it's something that you put in the body, it induces an immune response, and then it goes away. So once it's done its duty, it's gone, and you don't have any long-term problems with it. And if you and as you've said so clearly before, we need to reduce the number of people who can spread this virus because right now with lack of immunity and the high number of cases, the virus has plenty of opportunity to continue to uh, spread and mutate. So prevention is the way, especially since we don't have effective therapy when people get really ill, right? Well, one of the saddest things about this whole pandemic was that we still don't have a single drug that's effective in treating people that have severe COVID infection. True. You know, if people develop bad pneumonia, uh, there's really nothing we could do for them. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, prevention becomes all the more important. And it's remarkable. Most of us thought that we'd have drugs to treat this uh, infection long before we have a vaccine. It's actually turned just the opposite. So we need to use what we have. We need to take these new vaccines that, that are remarkably effective and use them to prevent the infection since we don't have any treatment once people get severely infected. Yes. And I know you soon enough, you'll be helping uh, looking at allergic reactions and collecting data and doing studies um, with the NIH. And I've heard it said, too, that a person even who has a history of allergic reactions is about 100 times less likely to have an allergic reaction to a COVID vaccine than they would be to penicillin. So maybe that puts it into perspective for our listeners. So let's say a person gets a first shot and it's Pfizer, and the site closes. That happened in Philadelphia recently when our convention center, the program had to close briefly, and they get the second, they need a second shot. What if the only option they have is Moderna, if that's what's available? Can we mix and match? I'm I'm sure it's not the ideal. No, and right now uh, we discourage that because quite honestly, there's no data that shows, even though those two vaccines seem to be very much alike, there's no data that shows that the one can sort of boost the other. So I think most of the time what we're trying to do is get people the same vaccine for their second shot. There is a little bit of leeway there. So if it, it is with uh, maybe a week or two late, that's probably okay. But, you know, I think Eventually, we'll do studies that will look at cross-vaccination, if I could call it that, where you get one dose with one vaccine, another dose with another. And eventually, we'll have to do that because my guess is that some of the, some of the booster vaccines for um, you know, these variants will be based on RNA just because of the ease of doing it. So people who got, let's say, the J&J vaccine initially, if there's a booster that's required, it might wind up as an RNA vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so really, if this is successful, uh, RNA will be the vaccines of the future. So the other question I had, Jim, is a person has both shots, but they can still transmit the virus. So for our listeners, the the patient who has two shots isn't likely to get COVID, I mean, they could still get it, but to a, uh, it'll be a less severe case, but they can still carry it. So they still need to wear a mask. Am I right? Right now, that's absolutely true. And that's because so few people in the population have been vaccinated. Once we get the majority of people vaccinated, we're in a very good position because everyone's protected. 
So the idea that you have to continue wearing the mask is gone. Right now, where people that get vaccinated and potentially can get an illness, although very mild, uh, could spread the virus, while other people aren't protected, we have to protect them with a mask. But mm-hmm. eventually, that's going to go away when everybody gets vaccinated. That's why we want everybody to get the vaccine. Exactly. And if a patient does have an allergic reaction, and, and you are a master of studying allergy and the immune system, uh, an allergic reaction would be hives or wheezing or a rash not fever, chills, that's a side effect. But if a person has what seems like an allergic reaction, please go to the emergency department for testing so we can test you the right way. Don't get the second shot until you see an allergist because you want that second dose because that bumps your protection from 50% to 90%, right? Absolutely. On the other hand, you want to make sure that it's safe for you to get that second dose. Mm -hmm. So the CDC now recommends that you go get an allergy appointment, get evaluated. I can tell you that most of our patients that have hives or a local reaction are able to take the second shot. So Mm -hmm. it's worth evaluating. It's great news. And if a patient has COVID, they shouldn't run to get the vaccine while they're sick, A, because they should be quarantined, but also it's understood that it's not gonna make you recuperate more quickly, am I right? It's not gonna help your immune system chase the COVID faster. No, the vaccine doesn't help acutely with the infection. But long-term, after the infection's resolved, it may help keep uh, you from getting COVID again. So it's Mm -hmm. well worth doing in the long run. So we're saying maybe wait about 90 days because your immunity is probably there and let somebody else get in line first. And and then you definitely, even if you've had COVID, you should get vaccinated. Last question, Jim, I noticed on television, on the news, that now different people are suggesting that you wear two masks. If people do that, we want to tell them to put the, the N95, the one that really seals around your face first, and then the paper mask. Because I've seen people on TV with the paper mask under this, the uh, N95, it kind of defeats the purpose of that tight, nicely fitting mask. Right. You want to have the mask with the good seal underneath. So an N95 mask is very efficient. Uh, use that first. Beautiful. Jim, thank you so much. I know how busy you are, and the world is depending on brilliant and dedicated people like you. So thank you, and thank you for joining us, and stay well. You, you take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Welcome back. We continue our update on COVID, and I'm very pleased to welcome the return of Dr. John Zerlo, the W. Paul and Ida Havens Professor of Infectious Disease, the director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and the chair of the Jefferson Enterprise COVID-19 Task Force. Twice last March, you were kind enough to share your time with us, John, in one of the peaks of anxiety for the entire country. So we are so grateful that once again, you've carved out time to guide us. Welcome, John. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Ritchie. Mm-hmm. So let's just spend a few minutes on the clinical picture, John. Uh, you know, I guess after an exposure, uh, the symptoms usually occur within four or five days, but it can take up to 14. So I always remind my patients, if you've been in contact with somebody, be aware that after five days, you're still not in the clear, yes? 
Yeah, that's true. And and I mean, I, th I think as we've gone along in the pandemic and seeing more and more cases, really the majority of individuals uh, who are going to get infected will do so usually within a week or so. I think the average is five days, but it can last as long as 14 days, the time from exposure to the development of symptoms. It can, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we know the symptoms can last about two weeks, maybe longer if a, a more severe case. But now we hear the use of a new term, long haulers. What does that mean, John? Yeah, that's a unfortunately imprecise term. Because if you think about what happens to people with COVID, the real sick ones get into the hospital. Oftentimes, they will end up in the intensive care unit on mechanical ventilation, and they will suffer you know, lung damage and sometimes heart damage and kidney damage. So we understand the, the, the consequences of those. But very often, people maybe even not getting hospitalized, just sick with a, with a flu-like type of illness, fevers and so forth, uh, many will, will end up just having symptoms that just seem to persist, things like fatigue and mental fogginess and achiness. It's very hard to, to kind of get our, our, our heads around that, just what is, what's causing that and, and, and how to treat it and how to, you know, uh, guide people. Well, I remember uh, several months ago, I had some of our Jeff um, physical medicine and rehabilitation docs on, and we focused a lot on rehab uh, for patients who have had COVID. If they, have, if they are still short of breath or their heart uh, uh, sustains any kind of long-term effects. Um, John, we'll talk about the vaccine, but first, uh, fortunately, it's a lot easier for people to get tested, especially if it's not ordered by their doctor. Uh, so it's pretty easy to find testing sites now. But if a person has to travel for a family emergency or a funeral or something, are there specific requirements? Um, in other words, does it have to be a rapid test or PCR or any distinctions that people should know about? Yeah, you know, each each state, each jurisdiction has its own rules and, and, and so forth. I've not heard of a particular jurisdiction that says you must get a particular kind of COVID test. More typically, they'll say you need to be tested within 72 hours of arrival, and you have to uh, either sign a form that says you've been tested and negative and that you don't have symptoms. That's more likely, and, and therefore, uh, when I've done some traveling, which hasn't been much, uh, I, I, first thing I do is, is check the state or the city and find out what, what are the local uh, uh, you know, regulations, which seem to change uh, fairly frequently. Great advice. So the other big thing on people's minds, and I've t I'm sure you've told and repeated this so many times, what are the guidelines on returning to work? So if somebody's exposed and they remain asymptomatic or if they're exposed and infected, let's break that down. Yeah, for, for those who are asymptomatic, we simply say that, you know, you've been tested, you have no symptoms, then we think it's safe to re return to work roughly around 10 days from the time of your positive test. And, and for people who develop symptoms, uh, around the same, about 10 days, pr provided that, you know, by the time the 10-day period rolls around, you're no longer feverish and your symptoms are clearly on the wane, that they're improving. For people who are sick in the hospital or have some kind of immunocompromised conditions, uh, we, we wait longer, more like 20 days before we say that they're, they're okay to, to come out of, uh, you know, to return to work or to come out of quarantine and so forth. So we're a little bit more careful with them. And I guess it's a little confusing because the testing can remain positive, but that doesn't mean the person is still infected. Uh, does that mean they can transmit it if they still are positive or are those virus particles just 
present and accounted for, but not really contagious. Yeah, so most of the tests, in fact, all of the tests, they don't measure for whole virus. They measure for pieces of the virus. Mm -hmm. and, and this has been a little bit of a puzzle as we've gone along that, yeah, the test can remain positive sometimes for weeks, long after symptoms have resolved. And for those who have no symptoms, they simply have, they continue to test positive without symptoms. And, and we have a lot of data, both real measured data as well as epidemiologic data that would suggest that, yeah, after 10 days or as we discussed, that they're no longer infectious and those little bits of virus are no longer transmissible. Good to know. So the vaccine, the CDC clearly states the categories and those who are first in line are in categories 1A, 1B, 1C. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, the first group, that we've largely gone through now include healthcare workers um, for obvious reasons because we are, are in the line of fire. Um, and then for people living in congregate care settings, nursing homes and the like, because if you recall, the, the, they've suffered uh, gravely with, with COVID. I mean, something like 35 to 40 percent of all the deaths have occurred from individuals from nursing homes. Then we move down to individuals in older age groups because we know that, that people who are older, the older you are, the more likely you are to, to suffer ser serious consequences from COVID. And in addition, we add to that group um, individuals with, uh, with underlying medical conditions like heart disease and diabetes. And then we'll be moving further down to really first responders, uh, you know, people really at the front lines of, that they could be infected uh, and could come in contact with people. And then ultimately we get to the rest of everybody else, which as Dr. Fauci suggested, that may be as soon as sometime in April. Well, wouldn't that be grand? And I know Pfizer isn't given to anybody under the age of 16, Moderna under the age of 18, but Pfizer now has the approval as does AstraZeneca to start uh, trials in 12 years of age and older. So that's promising because I know people are so anxious about their children and um, lastly, quickly, are there any data on women who were in the trials and may have conceived during the trial, and then women who became pregnant after they were in the trials? Doesn't sound like they had difficulty conceiving. Yeah, um, we, we have no, no data whatsoever, in short, to suggest that uh, the vaccine causes any harm in pregnancy or prevents pregnancy so that, or, or breastfeeding. So we're still learning, but that's kind of where we are, and that's, that's reassuring. Yes, very reassuring. Stay with us for the break, and we'll be back with Dr. John Zerlo and more on COVID. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar, type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And we're back with Dr. John Zerlo. Director of Infectious Disease at Jefferson. John, the Jefferson program is such a well-oiled machine. It's so organized. That's vaccinating the um, staff. And the beauty of it is it's administered right near our emergency department. Uh, so if a person has a problem, which has been rare, I mean, thank goodness, it sounds as though there are very few cases of true allergic reactions, which would be hives, wheezing. Um, but what about other sites like supermarkets and pharmacies? I'm sure they're prepared and tell us about that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the good thing is, as you pointed out, the, these severe reactions that might make people really sick, imminently sick, 
uh, they are uncommon. They're a little bit more common than perhaps some of the other vaccines that we've used, but they're still uncommon. And, and we have a protocol for dealing with that. I think even in pharmacies, you know, they have a protocol for EpiPens and, and things like Benadryl. And so happily, they're rare. And, and I think um, most vaccine sites are prepared to, to deal with those kinds of complications. Sure. And so that our listeners understand when we talk about an allergic reaction, that means life threatening on the spot, you have difficulty breathing as opposed to side effect, which we'll talk about in a moment, but that's the fever or the muscle aches that may come usually with the second dose. So if people do have a history of allergies, we advise them to stay for 30 minutes. The average person stays for 15 minutes to watch them. But if you do have a history of allergies, we ask you to bring your EpiPen and we watch those patients for 30 minutes, right? Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. And I, I've told my own patients as well, if you're going to um, get your shot and you do have a heart condition, lung condition, please tell your primary care doc or your cardiologist or your lung doctor before you go for your shot in case you do end up with a side effect that they're aware that you might be calling them because you're back in your heart rhythm from the fever or whatever. Don't you think that's good advice? Yeah, I do. And, and just to emphasize, though, the other important point, it is exactly those people with heart disease and diabetes and, and lung disease who are at the highest risk for complications of COVID. So mm -hmm. while we are concerned a bit about the side effects of vaccine, the, the consequences of COVID in individuals like that are far, far more severe. And so yes. the, bal the balance is certainly in favor of vaccinating mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Benefit risk always. So if a patient has a vaccine, well, how do we instruct them, John? Well, um, really what we say is that uh, you may have certain side effects, pain or swelling at the injection site, or over the next 24 to 36 hours, perhaps, uh, achiness, chills, low-grade fever, uh, just malaise, meaning you're just not feeling up to yourself. And that certainly happens. And, and it, it does seem more common with the second dose. It, it seems also more common in people who have had COVID, presumably because mm -hmm. they already have a partially immune state. And, and it and it just boosts their immunity and causes this kind of inflammation. But the symptoms typically resolve. In my second dose, for example, I had some low-grade fever and chills and achiness that lasted about a day. I did go to work the following day, and by the day, the day after, I had recovered. For some, it's a little bit more serious, but I think that's a more typical reaction. No, but that's really interesting to hear that and it makes sense. If you've had COVID, you might have a little more of uh, a robust reaction. Um, now, if a patient doesn't have any side effects, it doesn't mean that their immune system is asleep, correct? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. We have no data whatsoever that would suggest that the presence or absence of these side effects have anything to do with the effectiveness of vaccine. Mm -hmm. If you've gotten the vaccine and you haven't had any side effects or serious side effects, uh, count your blessings and, and, and it feels good. Sure. And if I've had my two shots and I have to get a shingle shot or some other age-related shot, 14 days is the going advice to separate yeah, between. Mm -hmm. That's the best advice. We don't have any hard data about that. As a general rule, we try not to mix too many vaccines at once, particularly a vaccine like this. Though, of course, in children, we, we use lots of vaccines all at the same time. But this seems like reasonable advice with these new vaccines. Mm -hmm. And as you know, as our listeners would know, they've been time tested, the children's vaccine. So thank goodness for that. So here's a very common question. 
I've had COVID. Can I get it again? Well, the answer is we certainly have in our own experience here at Jefferson and throughout the country, we hear about cases and see cases of people who clearly had COVID. They got over it perhaps last spring, they got over it, and now they've come up with another episode. That's not terribly surprising. Happily, what we're not seeing are uh, manuscripts and papers in the medical literature describing, you know, dozens or hundreds of people who had COVID back in the spring and now having it again. So it's not terribly surprising that uh, that somebody might not develop the full immunity and therefore be immune to any f uh, further mm. episodes of COVID. It's not terribly surprising, but happily, it does not seem common. And we think that uh, COVID infection provides some degree of immunity. And for all we know, it could be lifelong in some people. Mm -hmm. and, and then patients also ask, I've had COVID, should I still get the vaccine? Yeah, the answer is we believe so. Because of this, this chance, we do see people who get COVID and then get COVID again. And uh, so we do think it's wise. And, and we at the CDC, and we fully agree that we do vaccinate people who've had COVID. We suggest that they wait 90 days, not because it's going to necessarily cause them any problem. It's just because we still have limited vaccine. And we think people who've had COVID will remain immune for at least 90 days. We just want to give other people a chance to get vaccine before they do. Plus, along with that, if, you have, if you're in the middle of symptoms with COVID, don't think that if you get the vaccine that it's a therapy or that it's going to boost your immune response and get you better more quickly. So it's not like you're missing an opportunity because we're trying to share the, uh, the resources. Um, it's so interesting because you just can't predict um, how anybody in particular is going to respond to this. How about therapies, John? What have we learned about therapies between last March and now almost March this year? Well, yeah, we haven't. We don't have a blockbuster therapy, an antiviral medication, for example, that you bring somebody in, you start the medicine, and 24 hours later they're they're better. But what we have seen is that the the prognosis for people who get hospitalized, uh, reducing the chances that they'll be uh, need intensive care or mechanical ventilation, or of course dying, all of that's improved. Uh, since the early part of the epidemic. And I think it's, it's multifactorial. In other words, a lot of things we're doing at the same time. The treatments help, the antiviral treatment, there's a steroid we use, uh, the general care of people in the intensive care unit, the way we use oxygen therapy, the way we, uh, we use blood thinners uh, judiciously. I think all of those have really significantly reduced the, the mortality and, and the serious illness from COVID. But with that said, remember, is there's nearly half a million people who've died of COVID, and, and sure. so we're still struggling through that. Well, I think that one of the reasons that uh, COVID-19 has been so insidious is if a person has pneumonia or they have a, a clot in their lung or something, the brain is signaled uh, that there's a problem because we retain carbon dioxide, car you know, CO2. With COVID, am I, am I right? Your brain doesn't get the same signal, so you have this feeling like everything's okay when your oxygen level's dropping, and then the storm comes on very quickly. So yeah. I think maybe it seems like we're treating people uh, more rapidly, and maybe that's helping too. And proning, if you have a 30 seconds to explain what proning is, it's Remarkable. Yeah, sure. So I think we're more careful with oxygen therapy. And sure, people can suddenly really get sick and kind of right before our eyes. Proning is simply turning people 
instead of laying on their back, laying on their belly. And for some reason, it just allows the, the lungs to work more efficiently and to allow oxygen to get in the bloodstream more efficiently. And, and so that's why it's helpful. And, and that's something we've learned uh, throughout COVID. So many lessons learned. Stay with us and we'll be right back with Dr. John Zerlo. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. And we're back learning great information about COVID-19 from Dr. John Zerlo, Director of Infectious Disease at Jefferson. John, there may be the need for a booster. Tell us about that with the vaccine. Well, we don't really know how long the, the vaccine's effectiveness will last. And so we know that with some of the other so-called coronaviruses that cause the common cold, we know that the, the immunity from those probably doesn't last. And that's why people can get these kinds of colds over and over. I think the other potential reason for a booster um, is the fact that, as you've seen, we, we've gotten these variants or the, these viral um, spinoffs that, that might develop um, uh, uh, resistance to the vaccines that we've given. So all the companies are working now on these kinds of boosters that, that might, in fact, be um, even more effective against these variants that we would expect to arise. So those are two different reasons. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out over the next several months. Mm -hmm. And we learned that it's a matter of changing a little sequence uh, in the um, protein uh, lineup and the booster should be pretty, nothing's easy, but can be made within about four weeks if we need them. And I wanted to ask about, in terms of therapy, antibody infusions. Um, I know uh, several of my patients have gotten them. How long into the course uh, of symptoms? I would guess as soon as possible, but not after 10 days. Tell us about that a little bit and who would get them. Well, these antibodies are specifically designed to, once they're infused, to bind to the virus that's floating around in the bloodstream and, and in essence eliminate it from the body and therefore uh, keep people from getting sick. And so um, we have information and data about these things that if people were to be treated early, how early is early? All I can say is early as possible because that's the time when the virus is the most active following infection. And then we deliver these very potent monoclonal antibodies. That's what they're called. They bind virus. And we have data to suggest that if you get treated early, we can reduce the chances that, that people will require hospitalization. And of course, if you don't need to be in the hospital, it's unlikely you're going to get uh, sick and, and, and of course, you, you won't die from it. So we have at least some data to support this, and we are using this at Jefferson and many other places. And as, as we've talked about before, the people that you'd consider first might be somebody who has a, a obesity or they're... BMI, body mass index is over 35, kidney disease, diabetes, immunosuppressed, people over 65, et cetera. Um, John, lastly, if a person has had their two vaccines, we want to emphasize over and over, please still wear a mask because you can still carry the virus, which means you can spread it. And it's not just about you, it's about everyone around you. If you're really a thoughtful, good citizen, you're gonna wear your mask and keep your six feet, yes? All I can say is, yes, we think that might be the case. I think we're still learning here. Now, it, it's quite possible, and I'm an optimist, that, that actually the vaccine will be effective enough to reduce 
the chances that I would, if I've been vaccinated, get infection and therefore spread it to people. Where we are in the situation, however, is we just don't know that yet. So we mm -hmm. want to be cautious because we want to bring the pandemic under control. Perhaps it'll be four or six months or maybe even sooner that we'll find out, yeah, you get vaccinated. Not only will you not get sick, but maybe you're not going to be able to pass this on. So we're still in the learning phases, and that's why we're being conservative. Well, John, thank you. You've been such a big help because these questions are just stirring constantly. And I think you've really tried to help uh, reduce anxiety for a lot of people. And hopefully the next time we have you on, we'll have happier news. Thank All you, right. John. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now for your real champion, I call this segment Flower Power. Her family calls her Trisha, but thousands of people throughout Greater Philadelphia know her as the Flower Lady. When Patricia Gallagher moved in with her 85-year-old widowed mother and wanted to fill a void in her life after her dad died, one day she brought a beautiful bouquet of flowers, which brought a radiant smile to her mother, Claire's, face. That simple gesture brought so much joy. Trisha smiled when she explained that they were free. Trisha's daughter shared that a local grocery store had donated several day-old bouquets for a fundraiser that her daughter was organizing for a nonprofit. Trisha heard this and the light went on. Trisha and Claire approached the grocery store manager with their idea. We'll collect day-old flowers and deliver them to people in nursing homes. Well, the manager jumped at the wonderful idea and gave the daffodil duo so many bouquets they could hardly fit them in their small sedan. Mother and daughter took them to a local nursing home and were overwhelmed by the response, and the Happy Flower Day project was born. Trisha learned that grocery stores, florists, funeral homes, wedding venues all have flowers that are discarded at the end of the day. Trisha recovers those flowers for her flowering adventures. Then the stores don't have to pay a company to take the waste away. Everybody wins. Her philosophy, every flower deserves a second chance to make someone happy. A local minister from their church joined the crew. Each day, Trisha, Claire, and 91-year-old Bob would pick up flowers and begin their journey in prayer, asking, God, who needs these flowers today? Their hearts would lead them to hospitals, churches, nursing homes, and AIDS hospice, chemotherapy waiting rooms, even random bus stops and train stations. Trisha calls that prayer her personal GPS to find her route each day. Bob would march into the nursing home playing patriotic songs on his harmonica like Yankee Doodle or God Bless America, and the residents would sing along while Claire and Trisha would distribute the beautiful blossoms. Not only does Trisha find meaning and purpose in her mission, she cherishes those precious memories of special time spent with her mother, who passed away a few years later. Trisha began in May of 2013 with a new car. It's not unusual for her to clock 500 miles in a week. By February of 2020, she had traveled 191,000 miles and had personally delivered 65,000 bouquets, bringing fresh, fragrant flowers to those most in need of comfort and hope sharing love one bouquet at a time. Each day begins in Center City and could lead her to Lansdale, Ambler, maybe North Philly, Germantown. And when COVID limited contact with nursing homes, Trisha was drawn to the countless people on the street who needed a reminder that someone cares and they're not forgotten. She donned a mask, took flowers to the tent city where people would take a bouquet and share it with their neighbors or place the flowers at the entrance of their meager homes. Once again, 
Trisha was reminded that flowers speak a universal language saying, someone cares. When Trisha learned that our topic for this week's show was COVID, she shared a story. A woman who once received flowers noticed Trisha's social media posts searching for a vaccine appointment. The woman worked for hours and then contacted Trish to say she had gotten her an appointment. Trish was surprised, but I told her it was obvious. Trisha's act of kindness meant so much to this stranger that she wanted to take care of Trisha in return. Trisha is still blooming herself at age 69 and hopes to remain healthy and energetic to continue giving flowers for the rest of her life. She believes you're not bringing a bunch of flowers, you're bringing a bunch of messages that someone cares. We salute you, Trisha Gallagher, you're a real champion. Visit her website, happyflowerday.org. Learn how to start a Happy Flower Day project in your area. Thanks for listening. Next week, Dr. Lisa Freed from Yale University and Dr. Andrea Jones from Jefferson on heart disease in women. Send us a story about a champion in your family, workplace, or community to info at yourradiodoctor.com. Remember, colon cancer, the second most common cause of cancer death and numbers are rising in younger people. There's a national movement to decrease the screening age from 50 to 45. So join the Blue Lights campaign during March, Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Have a strand of blue lights. Put them on the front of your home or business. Put a blue light bulb on your porch. Share the message. Stop colon cancer. Get screened. It's February, Heart Month. I heart you. And so does Frank Sinatra. So stay tuned. And always remember that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.